Our second scripture reading this morning continues the story that we read last week of Jacob from the book of Genesis. As I mentioned in last week's sermon, history has been very, very kind to Jacob. Most of us remember him as part of the group of matriarchs and patriarchs of the Old Testament, one of the saints of our faith. But if we remember anything specific at all, it's usually just brief glimpses of Jacob's life, a dream or a wrestling match with an angel or how from him the nation of Israel got its name. But what we may have forgotten, if we ever knew it at all, is that Jacob is no Boy Scout. He's an accomplished deceiver, seemingly motivated solely by greed and personal interest. You remember from last week's Old Testament reading that Jacob is the second born of twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And according to ancient Near Eastern custom, the elder son, even in this case, with Esau being the older by only a minute, the elder son would receive the family's inheritance, the birthright and the father's blessing. Esau was the firstborn, but with Jacob clutching his heel and doing everything he could to literally pull Esau back into the womb so he himself could be the firstborn. Jacob lost that battle, but he seems determined to never let it happen again. And so Jacob's life becomes a series of one deceitful, conniving episode after another. And by the end of chapter 27 of Genesis, Jacob has not only duped his brother into giving up his birthright, he's also tricked his father into believing that he, Jacob, is actually Esau, so that Isaac gives Jacob the blessing that rightfully belongs to Esau, his eldest son. So, the, by the, so that by the time we get to our story this morning, Jacob is on the run trying to get out of town because his brother Esau is angry, and rightfully so, and is looking for Jacob to kill him. In our passage this morning, Jacob begins his journey not as a saint of our faith, but as a con man whose luck has run out and who's on the land. So let us hear that story as it comes to us from Genesis 28, verses 10 through 19. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set upon the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will be, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and I will keep, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. It's nowhere special. Just a wide open spot in the desert as Jacob makes his way towards Haran. Haran had been his mother Rebekah's idea. She had family there who might take him in and care for him since Jacob was no longer welcome in Beersheba. Haran is about 600 miles away, far enough that it's unlikely that Esau will try to follow. So Jacob sets out alone in the direction of Haran and travels until darkness falls and he can no longer see the ground in front of him. He left home in a hurry, so he didn't have time to grab a backpack or a sleeping mat or food or water. So he finds a small rock to use as a pillow and lies down in the dirt to sleep. And there, in that place, a certain place, Jacob has a dream. A dream of a ladder that extends from heaven to earth with angels upon the ladder ascending and descending Walter Brueggemann, the brilliant Old Testament scholar, suggests that what the Hebrew text describes here is actually something more like a ziggurat, one of those pyramid-shaped structures with terraced levels and a flat top. If it helps, picture the Mayan temples of Central America with their hundreds of steps leading up the sides. Archaeologists have found evidence of ziggurats in the ancient Near East from as early as the fourth millennium before Christ. The Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Assyrians, all the ancient societies built them as religious shrines or to mark a sacred place. Ziggurats were believed to be the place where earth and heaven meet and where the gods dwell. But this, this is not a holy place. It's just a place, a certain place, as the passage calls it. Just somewhere between Beersheba and Haran, where Jacob can lie down for the night. And it's fair for us to assume that Jacob didn't come looking for anything more than that. As far as we know, up to this point, Jacob had never given a moment's thought to God in his entire life. Jacob has been busy taking care of Jacob and looking out for what's in Jacob's best interest. But there he is. And here's this dream. And before you know it, God is speaking to Jacob, not from atop the ziggurat, making pronouncements from on, on high, but standing next to him, right alongside him, whispering promises in Jacob's ear. If God ever made a mistake, I'm sure it sure looks like this would be it. There must have been thousands of people back home who had prayed for a dream like this, 
who had kept their vows and done their duty and dedicated themselves to the service of God, but Jacob isn't one of them. And there must have been a thousand places more dramatic to have an encounter with God. Think about it. Over the span of human history, we've built magnificent structures for God to occupy, tabernacles and temples, mosques and basilicas and cathedrals. Some of the world's finest architecture has been inspired by our search for the divine and the ultimate and the holy. So if you want to go looking for God, the chances are good that you go someplace special. You come into this sanctuary or maybe return to the little white frame church of your childhood or to a quiet monastery or a retreat center. I don't know, maybe some people actually go looking for God in those churches like the ones along I-75 with the 200-foot-tall crosses on the side of the highway. Or maybe, for you, there's a special place in nature where you've found God before, a certain spot on the beach or at the top of the Foothills Parkway. Maybe your sacred place is the graveside of a loved one. But for each one of us, I bet there is a place, some place, some holy place where we expect to sense God's presence. Frederick Buechner says that we need to learn to trust whenever that happens. Pay attention, he says, when you find yourself with tears in your eyes and a lump in your throat, because that, my friends, is a place where the holy meets us. But it's unlikely that that happens in the checkout line at Target or in the waiting room of the dentist. Jacob's dream happens in one of those non-places, a wide open spot in the road between Beersheba and Haran, a certain place that is no special place. That is, until God shows up. And then it becomes a holy place. It becomes God's place. It's Bet-El in Hebrew. Bet meaning house and El meaning God. Bet-El or Bethel, literally in English, the house of God. The dream also happens as Jacob sleeps, when he's most vulnerable and least in control. Jacob's dream comes like our dreams, entirely at God's initiative. When we are either willing or desperate or exhausted enough to finally pay attention. Jacob doesn't deserve the dream. That's for certain. But he needs it. And what's more, he believes it. I will be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you home. I will not leave you. It's a dream which forms him. When Jacob wakes up, he doesn't write the whole thing off as anxiety or indigestion, but instead proclaims, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Bethel, the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob takes the stone that had been his pillow and stands it up as a monument. He smears it with oil to mark the spot. Surely, he says, surely this is the house of God. Jacob has an encounter with God, and he doesn't want to forget it. Jacob, though, is still a schemer and a double-crosser, a con man. 
but he's also God's chosen one who's very clear about what he's seen. He accepts it as God's gift to him, God's promise to him, a promise of a future he can hardly imagine, but nonetheless, a future he cannot discount. How often do we miss these encounters with God because we're too busy getting from point A to point B to pay attention to what's in between? We tend to be so goal-oriented, whether the goal may be graduation, a promotion, the end of a long, busy period at work. We're so busy that we can easily miss God's places and God's dreams along the way. A few years ago, a pastor friend of mine told me about an elderly gentleman in his church, a man who had recently retired and moved to my friend's town and ended up joining the church. The elderly member told my friend that he had spent most of his working life golfing for fun when he could find the time away from work and away from the responsibilities of home. But now that he's retired, he says that he plays golf nearly every day, but real early in the morning, just before dawn, and spends a lot of time exploring the rough and the woods alongside the manicured fairways. He told my friend that it's taught him something. If you always hit the ball straight, he says, you miss a lot of what's out there. What dreams have been going on in the rough while we're working so hard to stay in the fairway? Jacob's story reminds us that God is not confined to the fairways or the sanctuary or any place else we might expect. God is just as likely to show up where there are no clergy where there's no praying, no singing, no healing, no liberating, no saving. Places with no crosses, no steeples, no domes, no billboards, no signs that announce the Lord is in this place. Bethel, the house of God. But in those out of the way and unexpected places, those certain places, there too God may choose to meet us. Just like Jacob in a wide open space in the middle of nowhere. Or like in a cave in the mountains where Elijah heard a still small voice. Or on a dusty road to Damascus where Saul caught a blinding glimpse of God's plan for his life. Or in an ordinary stable where a teenage girl and her carpenter husband helped bear the Son of God into this world. It will happen in the most unlikely places, in the most unpredictable ways, with the most unexpected people, but it will happen. Because whether or not we're searching for God, God is always searching for us. Amen. As we go to God in prayer, I invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath in. And exhale to breathe in God's mercies, to breathe out God's mercies to others, to breathe in God's mercies, 
and breathe out God's mercies to others. And so, God, as we sit in quietness, for many of us, our thoughts are far from quiet. We are wrestling with doubts and fears. We're looking for answers. Perhaps we're hoping against hope. We are seeking strength. We are hungry, hungry for peace and wholeness, for healed bodies and minds, for rest from tears. Your word says the hungry will be filled, and we ask today for you to fill us. Fill us with the breath of life. Fill us with thankful hearts. Fill us with calmness, courage, and most of all with the knowledge of your presence. And so, God, for a few moments in our silence, fill us with your spirit and hear our prayers. Lord, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers for those who we know and love who are ill and surround them with your strong healing presence. For Jeff Emery, for Max Pettinger, for Gary Chambers, for all those we know and for those we don't that struggle with pain. Give them comfort and heal them. Grant wisdom to those who need answers to difficult questions. Grant hope to those who despair and friendship to those who feel lonely. Most of all, O Lord God, may we know your love, the great love you have for each one of us, for you know the hairs on our head. You count each beat of our heart. You knit us together when we were being formed. You know our getting up and our lying down, and you are familiar with all our ways. There is no place we can hide from you, for you were there at our beginning, and you will be with us to the end. May we remember whose we are and who we belong to, for you shaped us, you knit us in our mother's womb. And even when the threads rip or fray, when we become unraveled, do not forget us, but bind us back together as only you can. Oh God, we look for you to be present in our lives, in our communities, in our world, and here at First Presbyterian Church. Teach us how we can grow into faith and become more and more like Jesus. And hear us now as we pray that prayer that your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. In response to God's goodness and mercy, let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings. (laughs) 